elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. You're with 3CR Radio this morning on 8.55am or maybe you're listening on the web somewhere at 3cr.org.au or on digital radio at 3CR Digital. Stay with us. I'm Meg Kimber. I'm here with Zeb. We've got Ari Scott and Martin Leckie, both from the Disability Resources Centre here to chat about tram accessibility or lack of accessibility and how that campaign has been going. So welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, firstly, I don't know if this is a dangerous question to ask, but how are things going in lockdown? Oh, not bad for me. Not bad. That's good to hear. It's like wading through mud. The lack of human contact makes everything really muddy, I find. Well, I, I get a attendant carers who come in to help me every day, so I get some contact. I've got my housemate. So, yeah, I'm, I'm doing all right. Yeah, time becomes a little bit meaningless for me, but we'll, we'll survive, hopefully. Alrighty, let's start and maybe give a sort of overview and a background to the campaign for tram accessibility. Because I know we did talk about it a while back with Kerry, but basically this campaign has, in a sense, been going on for 40 years. Is that right? Yeah, so just to recap on that, it's an astonishing thing to think that the Disability Resources Centre was set up in 1981 when um, people who had effectively battled out of institutional settings found they couldn't fully engage in work, education, culture and social connections because they couldn't use public transport. And so, and of course, uh, much of the disability community is made up of people that don't drive. And so they rely on public transport to get around. And so it's been a really big part of DRC's work ever since then. And we're still, still battling with the same thing. Yeah. And I've been involved um, since 1995, really. When I got, I had a car accident, got my disability, quadriplegia, ended up in a wheelchair. I found, you know, couldn't get access. And the DRC helped me out with some complaints about access to buses and trains. And so I joined the DRC after that. So it's been, it's been going, we've been very much heavily involved in transport campaigning since I joined in 2002. And it's been ongoing. Yeah, and it's, it's really quite amazing when you think about the the projects, the mega projects that are going on in transport at the moment, like the Melbourne Metro Tunnel, uh, what's it called, the uh, the like overflies for the trains. So it's obviously possible. Uh, why do you think that the government hasn't fulfilled its commitment to tram accessibility? Unfortunately, that not putting people with disabilities at a high priority. I mean, we are supposed to be 17% of the population, so it's, not, it's a lot. And some other, but other, some other people have uh, louder voices. For example, the traders, when it always goes to council and then the traders oppose building the new accessible tram stops because 
at least a few parking spaces. Yeah. And um, they get the the ears of the politicians and it gets delayed. So I think that's part of the reason. So we just have to be stronger campaigning. But I think most of the public are behind us. They, you know, they really do think it's unfair that we don't have access to public transport. So somehow we've got to channel that support and uh, get the government properly funding access to trams in particular, is what we're talking about today, because it's illegal under the Disability Discrimination Act not to provide access to people with disabilities, and the Disability Discrimination Act is born in 1992, and then there were some transport standards brought in under the Act uh, that had a timetable for making it accessible from 2002 uh, until 2022, and um, the government missed all the targets along the way. It was supposed to be 90% accessible by 2017. Yeah. And they're still only up to about 23% accessible uh, for the tram stops. And they're supposed to be fully accessible by the end of uh, next year. But um, there's no way they're going to make that target. So they just need to put the funding into building those stops. It's not coming so far. So far. So that's what we're complaining about and we've now launched a legal action as well regarding that. Yeah, so that's the VCAT case. Is that based on the legal grounds from the Act? Yeah, it's well, we've submitted under the Victorian Equal Opportunity, Equal Opportunity Act. Uh, we had a choice whether to go with the Federal Disability Discrimination Act or the Victorian Equivalent Act, which is the Equal Opportunity Act, but... Um, we chose to go to the Victorian legislation because um, you can't get, or usually you don't get costs awarded against you if you lose, whereas there's a risk under the federal legislation of getting costs awarded against you. So that's partly why we've chosen to use the Equal Opportunity Act. Yeah, and we've, you can submit to go because often it goes, if it's not, if it's not, settled in mediation, it goes to the Victorian uh, VCAT. Anyway, we're going to straight to the um, VCAT, uh, which is the, the body that he- hears the um, complaint or that resolves the complaint or you know comes to a, some sort of decision. Yeah, this is the Victorian Civil and Administrative Trust Tribunal. So some com- complaints go, can go straight to that tribunal if they think they're not going to um, resolve in mediation in, a, in another way. So we've, we don't think it'll be resolved very easily because, you know, they have to go so far and spend so much money to do it. So we've, we've applied to go straight to VCAT and there'll be a hearing. Um, so we've lodged that complaint in um, July. There's five of us have who are all wheelchair users who suffer discrimination, cannot use the tram network hardly at all, have submitted this complaint. And there will be a two Victorian Human Rights and Equal Opportunity Commission, but through it will go through the be resolved by the Victorian Civil Administrative Tribunal, PCAT. But that might take a year. Okay, yeah. And so in the case that you are successful... What would be the the results of that? What would be the the implications for what the Victorian government would have to do? Like, would they have to 
make a commitment in the budget or would they have to give compensation? Well, that's, we're not sure exactly what we've asked for very general. I've asked them be get to find that the government is discriminating against us and to put forward any other condition on the government that the government has to fulfil. We're not sure of how far they will be, be willing to um, put forward. I mean, yeah, this, we've got limited expectations about what they will actually get the government to do, but compensation could be part of it. But mainly we want, you know, to get the access to the tram network. Yeah, of course. So we're going to use it. It's partly a political, it's a way of getting political uh, attention as much as um, what we hope to get out of the legal case itself. But we, yeah, we do hope to get that they will have a finding in our favour and that something will come out of it. But at the same time, we've got to keep up the other avenues of pressure on the government and campaigning. So it's just part of that overall campaign, which we've been running for quite a long time now. Okay. And so at the same time as that, there's the sort of running concurrently, there's the 500 days campaign. So Ali, did you want to maybe talk a little bit on that? Sure. So... As Martin was just saying, we're now less than 500 days from the date by which our public transport system is supposed to be fully accessible. There's no way the government can make that day, but we need to draw attention to that and say we need a commitment of some sort by that date towards achieving universal access, a public transport system that everyone can use. And um, what we're looking at is there's two pieces of strategic work that's coming out of the government at the moment. And one of them is a, a tram stop rollout strategy. It's going to be finished later this year. But there's a, that's just a piece of work that's going to sit on a shelf unless the government commits to it and said, right, this is something that we want to achieve in the next government. Um, so there's that piece of strategy. There's, a, there's another piece of strategy called the public transport accessibility strategy. But at the moment, they're just studies. They're just pieces of, of, of strategic work that could sit on a shelf and at the rate of change that we're going at at the moment public transport won't be accessible until 2066 I mean who's going to still be around amongst us then it's just an unthinkable future isn't it yeah um and so what we what we want them to do is basically commit to achieving universal access with a new speed in the next government. And at the moment, change is very, very slow. It takes two to three years to upgrade a single tram stop in our tram network. Um, right. The last two budgets, they've only committed funding to build two stops, basically. Whereas there's, you know, thousands of stops to go to build. And, you know, it's so, it's really cruel to a stop almost the building of level access tram stops, which is um, it's very disappointing. Yeah, and as we talked about um, last time on the show, making one or two stops accessible doesn't make a whole line accessible. So if you only have one accessible stop in the whole tram line, it's of no use. Right. Ah, ridiculous. Um, so with the campaign... Listeners can support that, can't they? They can uh, email Ben Carroll, uh, Minister Ben Carroll, and we can put um, 
links to the DRC and to that campaign in the show notes. Um, yeah, is there anything else listeners can be doing to support this? So at the moment, yes, if you go to our DRC website, you'll find the 500 days campaign and there is uh, an email template. So you can contact um, Minister Ben Carroll right now and say, please deliver this strategy by October next year. Please organise a consultation process to ensure that this work actually meets the needs of the people who it's intended to serve. And hopefully the more people that do that, the more that the government will realise that there's a real um, interest in this work because it's not just, as we were saying, about people with disabilities who are wheelchair users, it's people who have all other kinds of mobility issues, people who need seats, people with sensory impairment, people with temporary disabilities, like our Premier recently would have really appreciated accessible public transport. Um, and our seniors and people who use prams. So all together, this is actually a huge proportion of the Victorian population. We think that as many as one in two Victorians need accessible public transport at some point in their lives. So, yes, engaging via our website would be a wonderful thing. And you could yeah, contact your local member of parliament and, yeah, contacting the transport minister and getting involved yeah, with our campaign. That would be great. I mean, we've been, we uh, conducted a, an action in March where we um, we blocked a tram stop for a while and got joined, some people from the community joined us there. We had a sort of collaboration with a number of other groups, including Friends of the Earth. There was some support. And, um, yeah, we, we, we had some media response to that. And so I don't know if we'll be doing more of those kind of actions. But, you know, we're, we're kind of uh, trying to, yeah, to think of everything we can to uh, push this forward. Amazing. Um, thank you both for the amazing work that you're doing. And, yeah, I really encourage listeners to go and check out the DRC website. Before we go, uh, is there anything else that you want to get in there? Well, I mean, just wanted to bring up, mentioned the um, what's called the Vega report, which is um, a report done by the um, Victoria Auditor General's office. Yeah, Victoria Auditor General's office. They did a, a report um, on tram accessibility that was released in October last year to look at the trans the, the um, progress under the of tram access and how it um, related to the transport standards. Yeah, and they found that only 15% of tram services were actually accessible where a low-floor tram met a, a level access stop when we need both, if you're in a wheelchair or other mobility device. You need both the low-floor tram and the level access stop to meet each other. And they found that only that only happens in 15% of cases. So that just shows you how little access there is, and even though they're supposed to be over 90% by now, and so, um, I mean, the government has just finished delivering, or is going to shortly finish delivering 100 new um, E-class trams, which are the, the long, um, low-floor trams. And the last of those are going on to Route 58. And then they've announced they're going to buy another 100 um, next-generation trams, which will be shorter ones. It can go on other routes. But... Um, 
they're yeah they're still so far behind, and um, that's still not enough trams. They still won't make this even even though it has to, the infrastructure has to be accessible by 2022. The trams actually don't have to be accessible under standards by 2032. But at the rate they're going now, they won't even be accessible. Won't even have enough trams or the tram stops until well after that. So we need much greater commitment in funding you know, before next year. That's why we're taking this legal action, because we're so frustrated at the slow progress that's happened because the government just hasn't committed the funds to, to building these level access stops. I just thought it would be useful to add as well that whilst it must be impossibly difficult right now to imagine a time when public transport is part of our daily lives again, that in fact this is a really, really useful time to be doing the upgrade work because patronage of public transport is low right now and is expected to continue to be low for a couple of years. So it really is a perfect opportunity to, um, to, to invest in the work, partly because it's, uh, there are lots of shovel-ready projects um, so it's a it's a hugely would be an economically valuable piece of work to do, but it also it feels like a very opportune moment. Yeah. So I would just give an example. There's only one route on the, in the whole of the 24 routes in Melbourne that's basically fully accessible, and that's um, that's Route 96. Yeah. There's there's a route near me called Route 96, which goes from Brunswick to St Kilda. And that's the first tram route that's fully accessible. That only happened, became fully accessible in um, January of this year. And they've been promising to build that for 10 or 15 years. And they even had the funding 10 years ago. And then it went to council and then the council passed it. It was uh, my local council, Yarra Council, City of Yarra. So we had... I went to lots of council meetings and many other people did. We eventually got that through and then the traders complained to the minister and it got delayed and then went back to the council. Anyway, it's been a very slow process, but it's finally built and it does make a big difference for me. I can get into the city on the tram and go to St Kilda. It just shows what a difference it it will make if if they do build the accessible, and so for so many other people with disabilities who can't use the tram network, um, it's so important for us in getting around Melbourne. And often people can't drive, it's not an alternative. So they really rely on public transport. Um, so since that's happened in January, it's really made a big difference, but that's only one one route out of, out of all of the 24 that's actually accessible. So... Um, you know, it shows that it can be done because um, they have done it with one route. So I think there's no excuse to not committing proper funding to getting it built for the other uh, routes as soon as possible. Yeah, and to what Ali was saying before about it being an opportune moment, it is as well with a sort of public attention. I really appreciated the campaign you had last year at one point that was talking about lifelong lockdown and the sort of opportunity to compare not being able to travel uh, with everyone 
is experiencing right now in Melbourne at least and obviously in Sydney and other places and perhaps raise that issue as a priority in people's minds of hey this is an important thing not just when COVID lockdowns are happening. That's absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, looks like uh, we're actually coming to uh, the half hour mark, so well done. Thank you so much for your time and for including us. Thank you so much for coming and talking. Yeah, mm, thank you. Well, brothers and sisters, what a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMARC. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 250 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminuaya Mōbohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. We just had a great interview with Ali Scott and Martin Leckie from the Disability Resources Centre on trans accessibility. Next week, we'll be having more conversations about transport. Yeah, and good, well done, great interview, and good on them for um, all, all the hard work at the DRC for trying to make transport more accessible. It sounds like it's been a really long haul, and there's still a lot further to go. Unfortunately, but yeah, it's good to know that there are ways that people can support their campaigns. And as you said in the interview, we'll put that in the show notes for people to to get in touch and get involved. Good morning, everyone. You're joined by Jacob and Fung on Monday Brekkie um, on your beautiful Monday morning. Um, and that was a section from City Limits where Zeb and Meg were joined by Ali Scott and Martin Leckie from the Disability Resource Centre, and they were speaking about the long-running campaigns to make public transport accessible for everyone. And if you want to check out more of that, you can visit our website, 3cr.org.au forward slash city limits. How are you this morning, Jacob? I am going very well, thank you. <laughs> um, I think it's a, a beautiful day today, um, hoping to, to get out to the beach at some point. Um, how about yourself? Yeah, I was thinking the same. I was thinking along the same lines, especially because the rest of the week is supposed to be quite um, miserable. Mm. <laughs> so yeah. uh, we may as well make the most of these beautiful sunny days. Uh, did you watch the grand final for the AFLM on the weekend? I I did not, but you know what? I I heard the grand final from my my neighbours' houses. Oh, um, really? Yeah, there was a a chorus um, of chants and screams that really kept me up until about uh, two in the morning on on Saturday night. So I presume it was 
a good game. <laughs> what happened? Do you want to give us a little recap? Sure. I mean, I'm no football expert, but the grand final took place on Saturday in Perth, um, and it was super weird to see a stadium full of people, mm. you know, from lockdown here in Victoria. It was between the Melbourne Demons and the Western Bulldogs, and it, and it looked like it was going to be a really close game for the first half. And then in the third quarter, Melbourne just, I don't know what happened. They were amazing. They just kicked so many goals and, yeah, ended up winning, which was really exciting for them. Uh, I think it broke their 57-year drought. So uh, I I imagine your neighbours were Melbourne supporters. (laughs) Presumably. Yeah. <laughs> Although I do feel really bad for the Western Bulldogs and tomorrow morning on Tuesday breakfast, I know at least one of my co-presenters is going to be really upset. Um, and yeah, I, I, I hope Footscray and the other Western suburbs are doing okay after, after that loss over the weekend. Well, sending all of our love to Footscray <laughs> yeah. um, and the Western suburbs. We, we hope everyone's doing okay after your <laughs> catastrophic loss on Saturday night. Um, but well done to, to Melbourne. I'm, mm. I'm proud of us. <laughs> is, is that what you say? I sport? don't know. <laughs> sure. Um, well, we might go to a track now. This song is called Let Love Rule and it's by the great Archie Roach. comes us and we cannot find our way although we keep on searching for the light of day and we hear the children crying and we don't know what to do gotta hold on to each other and Let love Let it guide us through the night That we may stay together And keep our spirits calm Only fools Will shine the morning light That will keep us safe from harm Oh, I cover up my ears So I cannot hear The voices of hate And the voices of fear Cannot see what's happened to this country that used to be free. Play love, 
just the song Let Love Rule by Archie Roach. That was a powerful track to start our morning. Um, Now we're going to go over to some community service announcements and we'll be right back. If you're a renter experiencing hardship due to the pandemic, You can check now to see if you're eligible to apply for the Victorian Government's new one-off rental relief grant worth up to $1,500. To help you, Tenants Victoria have put together an eligibility checklist. This will make it easier for you to assess whether you're eligible to apply for the grant, which is paid as a contribution towards rent. There are some steps involved to qualify for the grant. See the checklist for more information and visit the Tenants Victoria website for further details on how to apply. Go to tenantsvic.org.au and search for Rent Relief Grants. Tenants Victoria is a 3CR supporter. Twenty Years on the Inside is an iconic new podcast series that gives voice to the experience of First Nations people in the Victorian prison system. Twenty Years on the Inside, I'm Vicky Roach. And I'm Kutcher Edwards. This series reflects on 20 years of listening to our mobs on the inside as part of the Beyond the Bars prison broadcast. 
20 Years on the Inside is essential listening for anyone looking to educate themselves about the realities of life on the inside and the need to end Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander incarceration. Well, a lot of the boys mentioned about being in jail. What you do really isn't who you are. You know, it's how you love your family, it's how you care about your cousins, and it's how you care about your people. That's what, that's what this is about for me. Catch the podcast via the 3CR website or on your favourite podcast app or listen live each Monday at midday. Welcome back. You're on 3CR Community Radio, 855am, or maybe you're listening on the web, 3cr.org.au. Uh, up next, we've got a segment where Laura Sykes, the Friends of the Earth's Sustainable Cities Collective Coordinator, joins Phil and Moretta from Dirt Radio to talk all things transport, climate change, and a new campaign that is being launched called Better Buses in Melbourne's West. We're talking about transport, climate change, and a Better Buses campaign being launched out of Friends of the Earth Sustainable Cities Collective. And joining us via Zoom today is Laura Sykes, who is the Collective Coordinator of Sustainable Cities. And good morning and welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Great to have you here. With the transport being the second largest source of greenhouse gas emissions in Victoria and the fastest growing, what do you think is driving this growth in emissions? Yeah, so you're right, Marita. Transport emissions are the second largest and, and fastest growing in Victoria. And that's mainly due to a really large over-dependence on cars. Everyone kind of thinks you have to have a car in order to get anywhere. And also massive increase in energy-intensive road freight, particularly across borders to Victoria. But that's also the cause of emissions growth nationally as well, which has grown about 64% since 1990. So a really massive increase from, from the transport sector in terms of contributions to emission. Yeah, that's really concerning knowing that uh, we're such a brown coal heavy state in Victoria. Like our carbon footprint must be like huge in comparison to, to so mm-hmm. many other places. And with so many roads being built, it's really quite concerning about the, the way that we're going. Yeah, definitely. And we're seeing a, a more mega roads being built every few months. And the, the state government here really is prioritising those over much needed public and active transport, which is really what the Sustainable Cities Collective is all about, ensuring that we have low emissions, accessible and equitable transport options for everyone and transitioning away from mega roads, which not only are polluting, but also mean that cars are, are still the dominant form of transport for a lot of people across the state. So currently there is a lot of debate around electric vehicles with taxes and fast tracking the replacement of fossil fuel vehicles with electric ones. I'm interested in this because it feels like climate action, but not necessarily a climate justice solution. What does climate justice look like as we transform the transport sector? Yeah, so for us at at Friends of the Earth and Sustainable Cities Collective, we really want to be ensuring that the transport solutions that we're moving towards aren't reinforcing existing inequalities or problems in our society. And so we know that electric vehicles is is one part of the puzzle when it comes to how we decarbonise our transport sector, but it really is still a very individualistic solution that only focuses on one person being able to transition and it's also 
they're still very car dependent, right? It's still reliant on us having cars on the road, even if they're electric or not. It still means that we're going to require more roads. And we also know that electric vehicles aren't really that accessible to everyone, not only economically, but there's also many people who aren't able to drive. There's people who may live with a disability, elderly folk, young people. There's so many people that it leaves out. And so for us, we are really focused on ensuring that everyone can access transport when it comes to moving towards those solutions. So things like electric buses, which I'll talk more about later, is a climate justice solution in the transport sector because it's it's transitioning away from diesel, but it's also ensuring that we are getting more people onto public transport, which is reducing the space on our roads and also means that there are more people that are able to then access the transport that they need in their communities. Yeah, absolutely. I, I find it really interesting, uh, the obsession that people seem to have over electric vehicles. And long-time listeners will know I always go back to good old Naomi Klein and, you know, like talk about this changes everything. Um, and that includes that idea of private vehicle ownership. I mean, it's really, it's something that needs to end. It, it had its brief run from, what, 1953 to now, but it's really over. Totally. And it needs to be over. We actually can't reach our Paris targets and keep warming below 1.5 degrees without massive investment in public and active transport over the road-dependent transport that we've had for decades. And here in Victoria, as I said, one of the main reasons why emissions are still increasing is because of our dependence on cars. So when it comes to electric vehicles, we also don't want to be reinforcing the idea that it's every every individual out for themselves to fix this problem. We actually need to work together collectively, and that's mm. what we're all about here at Friends of the Earth, collective action and bringing communities together through things like whether that's an electric bus scheme or you know a shuttle bus that can support low-income communities to access key services that can still reduce emissions. And that's, for us, that's a climate justice solution in the transport space. Amen. Yes. (laughs) Uh, You're listening to Dirt Radio on 3CR with Phil and Moretta, and we're talking to Laura Sykes from Friends of the Earth about transport, climate change, uh, what climate justice looks like as we transform that sector to get emissions down. And we also want to talk about this Better Buses in Melbourne's West campaign that is being launched Before we go there, Moretta, I know that you live in the western suburbs of Melbourne, and I think listeners who've utilised public transport at that kind of western way would agree that it's very bus-reliant, and with that comes a huge host of troubles. Can you tell us about your experience living out west with public transport or getting around the city? Yeah, definitely. So I'm near Footscray. It's got a lot of public transport that's available, but I find I do have to rely on my car to get to work straight away if I'm on call for a job. So I do find that you do have to really look into the bus timetables and things like that. If they had a little bit more variety of buses going maybe and Mm. connecting to the eastern suburbs as well, that would have been great. Yeah, the reliability Uh, must be a huge issue as well, like in terms, I remember sitting many a time in the western suburbs waiting for a bus that never comes. That never comes, (laughs) Um, yep. (laughs) And also, Laura, why do you think the Melbourne's West is missing out as compared to the bus, tram, train network that we see in other parts of Melbourne? I think there's, there's a few reasons. One is and this is a really disappointing reason, is that it isn't seen as politically important. There's a lot of areas in the southeast and in in the northern suburbs that for the Victorian government are important politically, and so 
that they invest in infrastructure, particularly in public transport in those areas. And the West is Labor's really strong held seat and they feel relatively safe there. So, you know, for them, it's seen as not as important, which obviously to yourself and other members of the community, it shouldn't be about politics. It should be about mm. what people actually need to access and making sure that the community members are a part of what those solutions look like. And the other thing which could be why the West is missing out is that Victoria doesn't actually have an integrated transport plan or strategy. And so it's a very piecemeal approach. It's about let's build this big thing here, let's upgrade this this bus system here, but it's actually not about looking at the whole system and thinking, okay, well, let's look at how all the buses intersect, not just in Footscray, but also how do they intersect into Altona, into Sunshine, into the eastern suburbs. And so it's a very uncoordinated approach. And so, yeah, I think that is really part of it. And we know that the western suburbs is one of the fastest growing suburbs in the state. And currently there's no plan for ensuring that the public transport network and buses in particular are going to cater to that growth. And there's lots of new growth suburbs there where they're being built, but public transport and buses aren't actually part of the planning process. There's a lot of different issues here. And and we know that in the West, the communities are also often migrant communities, low socioeconomic, people of colour. So there's multiple intersecting inequalities that mean these communities really need access to the basic services that we all should have, be able to get to the doctor, to school, to your job, on time, like you said, Moretta, and not having to wait for 40 minutes for a bus that's never going to come. Absolutely. And, and I think you kind of touched on probably some of the aspects, but I am interested, what is this Better Buses in Melbourne's West campaign all about? So essentially, this campaign is a, is about much needed reform in the bus network. There's frequency, connectivity and accessibility are really the key barriers that Marina touched on that are preventing people from using bus services or even being able to access them. And we know that the Western suburbs are really left out. So this campaign has three key elements. The first one is about advocating for 10-minute buses. So for some folk, it can take three hours to travel across the West just to get somewhere that might take 15 minutes in a car. So increasing that frequency and reliability is really essential to getting more people's, people out of their cars and onto buses. The second piece of it is what I touched on earlier around electric buses. So transitioning all new buses in the West and existing buses to electric, which would also be able to create thousands of new jobs, particularly in areas that you know have been affected in COVID and, and unemployment, but also means we can manufacture locally. And then the third aspect is about engaging a statewide network and looking at crowdsourcing from community members. What are the worst bus connections in your area? So do you have to walk for five kilometres to get to your closest bus? stop or does your bus not even go to the train station and then using that as a basis to take to key decision makers in the government primarily the the minister for public transport and say hey this is what the needs are in the community these are the solutions that we're proposing and these are the things that we need not only in order to provide accessible transport to people in the west but also to rapidly reduce our emissions in in the transport sector so we see that's really important particularly in these communities where new suburbs are being built because we don't want them to be locked into car dependence so if we're doing this planning early, then we can see, hey, this works in the West. It's a climate justice solution for communities that are often left out. Let's roll that out across the state. So that's kind of the gist of the campaign. And we want to be able to work with lots of different groups, not just transport groups, but climate groups, community groups, local councils, unions, and really have a a cross-sector response because we know that transport affects everyone in our daily lives. And so we need to bring all of those different groups together in order to find the solutions that are going to actually work best for those communities. So I'm also involved with Sustainable Cities Group at Friends of the Earth. Uh, How can people get involved in the campaign if this interests them? 
Good question. So, yeah, if you're passionate about sustainable transport and grassroots campaigning, maybe you live in the West and you really want to see better bus services, you can come along to our launch event, which is next Wednesday, the 15th of September. Um, It's online, unfortunately, but we're going to have a great crowd. We've got some great speakers and some interactive activities as well. So it's from 6 p.m. till 7.30 p.m. on Zoom. We can pop the link in the show notes for people to RSVP. And if you're interested in volunteering for Sustainable Cities, we meet every fortnight and we work on what our plans are for the the upcoming month and the tactics and ways that we're going to engage with the community. So we can pop the details of how you can get involved there. But you can also follow us on social media as well if you just want to stay up to date. We are at We Sustain Cities on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Excellent. We'll check those links, as you said, in the show notes so everyone can get involved. And we want to thank you, Laura, for joining us today on Dirt Radio. Amazing. Thanks so much for having me and look forward to seeing you both at the launch event next week. Yes, you are on 3CR and we were talking to Laura Sykes, Friends of the Earth Sustainable Cities Collective Coordinator, about all things transport, climate change and the launch of the new campaign for better buses in Melbourne's West. Good morning, you're on 3CR. That was a section from Dirt Radio featuring Laura Sykes from Sustainable Cities and Communities. So, Jacob, I wanted to ask you a few questions about a really exciting program that took place last week. And I know during last week's show we actually heard from some young people about this uh, because you had interviewed them, which is really great. So it was Vic Youth Parliament um, which kicked off last week. Could you tell us a bit about the program just overall and, and the different groups that came together? Sure, yeah. So um, for those of us that were listening last week, um, Youth Parliament is a program run by The Y and it includes over 120 young people from across Victoria coming together in groups to essentially develop bills um, on issues that they're passionate about and then they debate those bills in a mock parliament setting. Um, and it's, it's not only a fantastic program for youth advocacy, um, it's also a really great way for young people to build skills in politics, in debating, um, and just in, in general self-confidence. Like a lot of these young people are still in high school. Um, so I think it's, yeah, it's, it's all around a really holistic and um, great program. And there was a wide diversity of groups as well. So we had groups from um, Melbourne and also all across Victoria in regional centres as well. And probably some of the the standouts from the week. So I was um, attending a number of debates um, and there was... Excuse me, sorry. There was one um, in which uh, one group from Deaf Victoria wanted to mandate mandatory Auslan teaching mm. in schools from, from kindergarten to year 12. Um, and essentially the, the idea was that there would be 100 um, minutes a week, so that's about two periods of class, in which students would learn Auslan as a language other than English. Um, and that was a, a really uh, inspiring and, and interesting debate to watch because it was partially held in Auslan, so we had interpreters there um, and then partially held... Uh, and just spoken English. Um, so I think that is probably the first time I've, I've ever seen a debate yeah. held um, in Auslan. So it was really special to witness. And my hat goes off to the Y for mm. um, doing such an amazing job at including such a wide variety of groups. And I think it's definitely something that should take place 
in every program, but you know it doesn't. So it was it was really cool um, to see that. And, and Deaf Victoria's bill was incredible. Um, the the opposition had some critiques in which they critiqued um, the resource divide between public and private schools, mm-hmm. and they said that it would likely be more successful in in better funded schools, um, which is a, a totally valid point. Um, and they also pointed to other logistical concerns about the shortage of, of Auslan teachers in um, in society in general. So that was a, a really interesting Yeah, debate. it sounds so incredible. And and going back to what you were saying before about the debates taking place in, in Auslan, I mean, it sounds like Youth Parliament is way more representative mm. of the community than our actual parliament. <laughs> <laughs> I would agree. Yeah. You know, I, I absolutely would agree. And I think um, uh, federal parliament might want to take some notes, oh, actually, definitely. about the fact that this whole program was able to be run online um, and the fact that, you know, there are some states, and I'm not sure about the federal, but uh, people that have adjourned parliament during COVID because they mm. can't meet in person. It's like this this can be done. And I think these young people have really shown us how to do it so yeah exactly and surely it would it would be more accessible for some people mm. you know who do have some challenges with accessibility or or chronic illness or other other health factors um yeah. that aren't considered so yeah that's great um mm. well so you were a youth press gallery journalist and you were covering the Skyline and Burundara bills. Could mm-hmm. you tell us a bit more about these bills? I know we heard about Skyline last week. Yeah. Yeah, so um the so my two bills that I was covering as you said were from two groups. So one of the teams um was a group of young people, six of them um across Melbourne and they they all represented the Skyline Foundation, which is an organization that advocates um, for helping people... Well, they don't advocate, they actually do... Well, they, they do advocacy, sorry, and they do a lot of work on the ground as well, helping young people out who are at risk of dropping out of the education system uh, due to uh, socioeconomic factors and things like that. Um, so this was a, a really passionate group of young people who um, were trying to raise the age of criminal responsibility from 10 to 14. Um, and you may have heard Shahila... Usman, who was the, yeah. the youth premier elected in parliament, discussed that last week. Um, so there was a strong emphasis on less punitive measures and more rehabilitation, which I think is absolutely what is needed. Um, and we, so I sat in on that debate and um, it was a, a very fiery debate. So the, uh, the government team were trying to set up um, an advisory body called VJAB, uh, mm-hmm. the Victorian Youth Justice Advocacy Body. Um, which would comprise of representatives from government departments. Um, they wanted people there from the Aboriginal Heritage Board, um, the Parkville Youth Detention Centre, um, and they would all essentially uh, assess the the cases of, of young offenders and administer what they consider to be appropriate uh, rehabilitation responses. So, for example, assigning a psychologist and a social worker or directing that young offender into alternative education. Um, and it was interesting to, to watch that debate play out. Um, and the, the opposition were quite firm in their criticism that they weren't against raising the age. They just thought that the VJAB body, which I just mentioned, had too much power. And they were like, there is a lack of, of checks and balances. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, but yeah, some, some very compelling speeches in that debate. And I think 
um, I'm hoping that these young people are empowered by that experience to go into politics because I think we definitely need um, some fresh faces up in there. Mm. Um, so that was the the Skyline team. My other team were this amazing group of young people from Burundara. Um, so they were representing the, the municipality. I think it's in Melbourne's west. Um, and what they were advocating for was an online mental health hub. So an issue that they were quite passionate about and was quite important to their community was the mental health system. Um, and now, as we know, throughout COVID lockdowns, it's really been quite a major issue for young people and for everyone, essentially, this mm. sense of isolation and you know, people feel like um, they aren't coping as well as, as they normally would be. And the the waiting times for uh, counsellors are, are actually very, very long. <laughs> I can say that from, from personal experience. Um, but this team were essentially wanting to set up a centralised system um, for referrals and for patient information. And what it was, essentially, you go to a GP... Um, you tell them about your struggles and, and your story, and then they put that in a system um, with your consent, of course, and then this can actually be accessed by specialists um, and psychologists, and essentially the purpose is you're not re-traumatizing the patient who mm. has to retell their story. Every single time. Yeah, every single time. That's right. Um, and this is all based as well on the advice of the Victorian Royal Commission into the mental health care system. Um, which found that my health record was basically not doing an adequate job mm. of this. Um, so, yeah, that debate was was super interesting as well. Um, I think the opposition were, were trying to point out that um, this is trying to add a Band-Aid solution to a, a very deep problem. And yeah, a deep passed. systemic problem, perhaps. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, yeah, I think that bill passed. Um, yeah, and it was it was a pleasure. They were all really awesome. I was so... So pleased to be able to report on both those bills, and I will continue to do so for a couple of weeks, um, trying to get some articles published, so keep an eye out. Yeah, that's awesome. So um, you you talked us through some of the highlights earlier. Were there any others that you wanted to mention from from last week's parliamentary sitting? Yeah, so I think I mentioned the, the Auslan debate yeah. earlier, which was amazing. Um, well done to Deaf Victoria for their incredible bill. Um, there was another, there was another one on, uh, the last day on privately funded aged care. So I thought this one was interesting because it was, it, um, extremely relevant to the events of last year. Which, yes, very topical. Yeah, which, which as we know, um, there aren't actually a lot of laws and regulations governing private aged care. So, and that's essentially led to many, many deaths, um, of the elderly. Um, from COVID. So mm-hmm. this team um, was the Melbourne High Changemakers, led by Arth Tujetsa, um, and they were trying to put regulations on nurse-to-patient ratios, essentially making sure that there was enough nurses uh, to patients in private aged care. And they also wanted to put a mandate on full-time staff because a big issue that they heard from aged care workers is that there's a, a massive casualization mm-hmm. of that workforce because obviously, you know, there's lots of different shifts to cover, and I think it probably works um, good to have a mix of, of full-time and casual employees. Um, and they also wanted to establish an advisory board um, to oversee this, and they were getting a lot of opposition. This bill, surprisingly, didn't actually pass um, mm. the legislative 
assembly, and the opposition were digging into them for not acknowledging the work of unions in their bill um, and all the advocacy that they've done for private aged care. So super no, it's interesting. quite interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, what is next for Youth Parliament? Yeah, so um, all of the, the youth parliamentarians um, have finished up for the program, so I think they're being given a break, but they've been working hard on their bills, and these bills have been given to the Minister for Youth in Victoria, Ross Spence, yep. um, and she is essentially going to look at them, um, and there's actually been some bills in the past that have been written into law, so... That is a very exciting prospect because yeah, I awesome. think many of those bills would, would do amazing things for the community. Um, so, yeah, they they will all be considered by the government. Um, and then I'm sure these young people will go on to do incredible advocacy work in their communities. Yeah, it, it is quite reassuring to know that we've got such passionate and um, driven young people mm. out there. If any of our listeners are interested in finding out more about these uh, young people and their bills, where can they go? Yeah, so we can check out the blog um, that our, our youth press gallery have been working hard on. Um, so you can just visit YMCA Victoria um, Youth Parliament. Dot com, I think it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, or if you just type that into Google, it, it should probably come up. Um, you can also check out our Twitter at YPVic, um, the Facebook page, YMCA Youth Parliament Victoria, um, and Instagram as well. So we've we've made um, many, many posts about all of the different debates. Um, so if you, you're interested and you want to read a bit more, um, yeah, those are the places to go. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Jacob, for giving us an update on, on Youth Parliament. Um, no worries. We might go to a song now. Jacob and I are both very excited to play the song. Yes. We've just found out that it's we share we share this song as one of our favorites. Um, <laughs> it is called it's called Fallen by Jessica Malboy. Something about the way you drive me up the wall And there's something about the way it leaves me wanting more
That was Jessica Malboy with her song Fallen. Ah, beautiful, beautiful so music. So beautiful. I, st- I stand that woman so hard. <laughs> I know, she's amazing. She, yeah, she's incredible. Um, love you, Jessica Malboy, if you're listening. <laughs> um, so up next, we've got a, a section from Out of the Blue. Um, as Australia fights for ending the use of fossil fuels... There's a new campaign emerging in the Bass Strait against gas developments. Um, so recently, campaigners went to King Island to protest seismic tests for gas, with concerns the explosions may harm marine life. Um, and this section is brought to you by James from Out of the Blue, who caught up with Ali King from Surf Riders Foundation in southern Tasmania. Lots of climate news in the past couple of weeks following the latest report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and into the lead-up of the next international climate change negotiations in Glasgow. This week, the UN Special Advisor on Climate Change, Selwyn Hart, reiterated that Australia should stop using coal by 2030, along with other developed nations. A study in Nature found that 95% of Australia's coal reserves, 40% of our oil and 35% of our gas must stay in the ground to have a 50% chance, that's a coin flip, of keeping warming below 1.5 degrees. And of course, earlier this year, the IEA, that's the International Energy Agency, said that exploration and development of new fossil fuel resources should stop this year. Meanwhile, in Australia, of course, the federal government is still talking up a gas-led recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic. It's in that context that a new fight is developing against gas projects in Bass Strait, in July, the federal government regulator NOPSEMA approved gas developers Conoco Phillips to begin seismic surveys west of King Island. And on Thursday this week, Beach Energy, another company, received approval to begin seismic testings at a different site east of King Island, about 60 kilometres from the town of Stanley on Tasmania's north coast. As I found out, environmental and community groups are also concerned about the impact on marine life. I spoke to Ali King from Surfriders Tasmania, who has been campaigning against these bass stroke gas projects. All right, Ali, what do you make of the announcement yesterday from the federal government regulator that another gas company, Beach Energy, is allowed to begin seismic surveys, this time around 60 kilometres north of Stanley and 75 kilometres east of King Island? Well, to be honest, the news does not surprise me at all. Um, I've been following obviously the seismic in Tasmania um, for a while and NOPSEMA have, you know, I I actually don't believe that they have ever declined um, any application. They've absolutely sent them back for amendments, but I don't think they've ever actually said, nope, you can't do this here. So it doesn't surprise me at all. 
Um, it is disappointing, obviously, um, as with all of this in the oil and gas and the new releases um, that's gone ahead. But, yeah, it's not surprising. I do actually have a little bit of hope on this one because Beach Energy have said that they will invest in doing some science around, you know, fisheries um, and the impacts around that. So I think that could be a bit of a positive thing going forward um, because the area in particular is, you know, famous for blue spot fat, flathead, sorry, blue spot flathead, uh, King George Whiting, you know, they're prized fishing grounds um, that are known about quite far and wide. So I think that that information could help us, but yeah, disappointing, but unsurprising essentially. Mm. So can you tell us about um, surf riders and what you drew you to get involved with the other King Island campaign? This is the gas field to the west of King Island. Yeah, absolutely. So um, basically, Surf Rider Tasmania actually formed due to this going on. Um, basically, a few of us, you know, a couple of mates of mine and people that have been involved in um, all sorts of, I guess, trying to do do better things for the earth activism and things so sorry i worded that terribly um basically yeah it formed um due to this seismic testing so a, a crew down here got together um we've seen i think particularly in tassie i mean we are an island and the majority of the public live near the coast and there isn't really any organization down here that is specifically ocean based so we really saw a gap um, and this seismic thing really brought it to our attention and said, well, you know, we're an island and we're not doing enough to protect our waters. So we sort of all jumped on board. We formed Surf Rider Tasmania and that was with the support of Surf Rider National. Um, so they actually got in touch with us and said, look, we'd love to have a bit more involvement. Tassie's obviously got a lot of marine issues going on. Let's all start to work together. So that's what we've done. Um, Surf Rider Tasmania have formed the No Gas Across the Bass campaign. So that's our campaign to basically work on all of these oil leases in Bass Strait. So the predominant one was Conoco Phillips testing west of King Island. Um, that's been the one we've put the most amount of work into, I guess, because that's an area that, you know, it was seismic tested a long time ago, but there's no gas and oil fields in that area currently and there are a lot of new releases so in March this year the government put I think another five leases out off the west of King Island and the west coast of Tassie so that's sort of our broader aim to work on all of those but obviously as they keep popping up you know we're focusing on particular leases with particular companies. Mm. And can you tell us about what are the main concerns that you have around these gas developments? Well there's Quite a few concerns. I mean, overall, we don't need any new oil and gas. Um, the IPC re IPCC report that's just come out says, you know, if we're going to reach zero emissions by 2050, we cannot um, drill for any more oil and gas. Um, you know, climate change is a massive factor and we shouldn't even be looking for it. We should be investing into renewables instead. Um, in terms of seismic testing, you know, the issue with that is we don't even know about the impacts. Um, the the science has not been done. And, you know, there, there's been little bits here and there. Um, there's science to say that it does harm zooplankton, um, actually kills them within, within a 1.3 radius. There's science to say that it harms crayfish sensory organs. So, for instance, if they flip over, they can't flip back up. But the problem is science is expensive to do. And, you know... 
we need these companies if, if they're wanting to be seismic testing our oceans and, you know, making millions and billions of dollars out of exploiting these fossil fuels, they need to be investing in doing this research around it so that we know the impacts. Um, the ocean is really hard to study and, you know, some of these impacts, for instance, cray, crayfish larvae, um, they swim around in the water column for two years. So we could see this test happen now and we might not see impacts until two years down the track. And, you know, by then the company's walked away. So we need investment now into to getting these answers. And we should have these answers before we are mindlessly releasing more of our oceans for oil and gas exploration. Mm. And did I read that you grew up on one of the islands? Was it King Island? No, I grew up in Tasmania, oh, yeah. if that counts. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Sure does. Yeah, not... Um, yeah, so I guess, yeah, growing up down here, um, I've spent a lot of my time, you know, up the east coast, I've spent a lot of my time up on the northwest coast as well. And for me, I mean, people go, oh, you know, you're in Tassie, you're remote. But for me, when I go to the northwest coast, it's my favorite place on earth. It's mm. the one place that I feel that I can, you know, get out of the city. I can, I can walk down the beach and not see another soul. I can, breathe fresh air. Um, I, You know, I drive tourist buses, actually, and right. I get that many people on my buses that come down here. I take them, you know, to one of these sort of wild places, and they go, oh, what's that smell? And it's actually fresh air. <laughs> um, you know, they, they actually haven't smelt, you know, the, the sea and the air. And for me, it's like it's just unfathomable because I've grown up with it. But it just shows, you know, and they all leave with this, you know, this place is amazing, we need to protect this, you know, and and in my opinion, it's all worth more, you know, in its natural state for fisheries, for tourism, which obviously are both going under a lot of issues from COVID and things, but that's not going to stay around forever and we're going to need these industries to rely on um, once oil and gas goes down the drain because it is a dying industry. So. Mm. And, w- and what led you to, you know, become an activist around um, around this campaign was this have you been previously active in environmental campaigns honestly not really mm. um so i actually used to just work a couple of years ago i worked you know in a normal nine to five job and um selling cars of all things actually <laughs> and I've, I don't know, I guess I grew up around the ocean. I've always liked surfing and things, but I got a little bit tied up in that nine to five life. Um, mm-hmm. And I went on a walk one day and down to our south coast, actually, which is one of the most remote places in the world. You know, you can't drive in there. You can only get there by a walking a boat or a helicopter. So when I got down there, there was plastic all over the beach. I saw a seal literally there suffocating in a fishing net and I quit my job and mm. applied to uni. So mm. I guess once I got into my Bachelor of Marine and Antarctic Science, which relates a lot to climate and our oceans, um, it didn't take long for me to realise how severely in trouble we are. And that's when I sort of dropped everything and said, no, I have to do something to fight this. All right, good um, on you. Yeah. Um, what can people do to get involved in these um in these Bass Strait gas development campaigns? So at the moment, um, we are working on a bit of a longer-term plan. I think a big issue with this is education. So seismic testing happens out at sea. You know, it's remote. We don't see the impacts. We don't hear it. Um, So it's not in our faces. You know, it's not like those plastic issues or, you know, forestry where we might, you know, 
it's obvious. So education is the biggest thing. Um, we need people to understand what seismic testing is. We need them to understand why they're doing it. Um, it's a big picture to draw together. So if, you know, I think at the moment people educating their friends, starting the conversation, you know, just talking about these things and getting it known. A lot of people I've spoken to have gone, oh, well, yeah, that sounds bad, but, like, I don't really know what seismic testing is. And, you know, if we can get it, it out there and it known, um, I think that's a massive step as well. Um, and putting, you know, pressure on our, on our MPs as well is going to be a massive thing because as much as we can go, you know, we're apolitical, which we are, um, personally, I don't care, you know, who people vote for as long as their policies are good and correct and, you know, to better all of us. So putting those pressure on all of our MPs, uh, writing to, you know, anyone that you might have had contact with in, in high up areas that can influence this in, in the right way, that's a really great thing to do as well. Uh, we are hoping to have a few paddle out events and things. That's obviously easier down here in Tassie than it is in Melbourne at the moment. <laughs> Um, but if we do have any Tassie listeners and you want to come along, um, sing out, that's a great thing to do. Another thing is um, Surfers for Climate actually have a petition on their Instagram and Facebook pages to end all oil and gas releases. So that's a really great way to jump on board, put your name to that as well. That was Ali King from Surfriders Tasmania. And you can stay up to date with their campaign by following No Gas Across the Bass on Facebook or on Instagram. And thank you to James from uh, Out of the Blue for that report. If you'd like to listen to other episodes, you can go to 3cr.org.au slash Radio Blue or catch them every Sunday from 11.30am to 12. Yeah, fantastic report there from James. And now we're going to jump to a couple of news headlines. Uh, so something that, that jumped out to me this morning um, was Victoria will be trialling a vaccine economy in six highly vaccinated municipalities um, in regional Victoria. So it's it's scheduled to start in October 11th. And basically, it's um, from what I understand, it's an opt-in um, trial, which will be happening across hospitality, hairdressing, beauty, tourism, and events. Um, and essentially, it's trialling uh, greater patron numbers for those venues that can prove that all of their patrons are double-vaxxed. Um, and basically, it's interesting right now, um, the government is still ironing out, trying to figure out how we are going to provide evidence um, of people that are fully vaccinated. At the moment, you can access a digital certificate through MyGov, um, which lists your your name, your age, and your vax your type of vaccination. Um, but there have been growing reports on social media that this is um, exploited and forged um, by people who want to avoid getting the jab entirely. So it'll be interesting to see how this this trial pans out and if it's successful it will probably be replicated across the state. And that's probably what our new, um, as they say, COVID normal is going to look like in Melbourne. Yeah, it's interesting that they're doing a a trial for, like you said, those highly vaxxed areas, given that the government did release their roadmap uh, to opening 
forward to ending lockdown. Mm-hmm. Um, there are so many steps and I know people still have a lot of questions. So it'll be interesting to see how that goes in these smaller parts of the state. For sure. And I think probably one of the my major concerns moving forwards is ensuring that there are accessible ways um, of, of proving that you've had both vaccinations because at the moment I, I don't think a digital certificate mm. is enough. You know, we have people, members of our community, perhaps they don't have access to technology for varying reasons. Um, perhaps they're not literate um, in, you know, digital things like computers and, and smartphones and, and stuff like that. Um, and perhaps as well the, the information isn't available in their spoken language. So I think accessibility is something that should be uh, prioritised moving forwards. Definitely. Um, do you have any concerns about this uh, double-vaxxed economy? I mean, concerns maybe maybe not as of yet. I think just a lot of questions and... Mm. and um, I think for me it will just be, yeah, just seeing how we go. And I and I imagine that there will be things that will pop up, uh, things that, you know, we didn't consider beforehand. So it will be an interesting time from now until the end of the year. An interesting time indeed. Um, and up next, we've got an interesting segment for you. Um, so this is following on from our previous report on the new fight emerging in the Bass Strait against gas developments. So James from Out of the Blue caught up with Tom Allen from the Wilderness Society. To find out more about these gas developments around King Island and particularly the concerns around the impact of seismic testing on marine life, I caught up with Tom Allen from the Wilderness Society who's been out on King Island speaking to community members. Can you tell us a bit about what you've been doing out there? Yeah, The Wilderness Society went to King Island um, along with Surfrider organisation and, you know, the reason we were there is because um, a company, uh, the United States' uh, third largest oil and gas company, ConocoPhillips, um, you know, had recently announced it was planning to seismic blast um, about 25 kilometres off the west coast of King Island. Um, and we basically wanted to understand better what people on the island thought, how much they knew about it, um, and to, you know, really get an understanding of what we believe would be the adverse impacts to, um, the, uh, the fishery off the west coast of, of uh, King Island. Mm. And so what are the main concerns with the, with the, this, uh, seismic blasting exploration? Well, you know, there's multiple concerns. I think um, one is a kind of big picture concern, which is that um, the International Energy Agency announced um, earlier this year uh, sending a shockwave through the uh, fossil fuel industry that there should be no new oil and gas um, e- exploration or expansion starting from this year. So, you know, that's the global peak body on energy. Um, and that's really the context against, um, we, against which things like this are happening. Um, and so from that, you know, there really is no legitimacy for, um, any company, including the Australian government to keep, um, expanding, uh, oil and gas exploration. So that's the, the big harm is to climate change and, and the environment. 
And then if you scale down and focus in on King Island, um, there will be kudos to the Tasmanian government, which recently put in a submission to a Senate inquiry on seismic blasting, which put forward the scientific evidence uh, that seismic blasting causes permanent damage to uh, you know, marine life, including invertebrates. And it just so happens that a key industry for King Island uh, are invertebrates, rock lobsters. Um, there's a $22 million uh, annual um, value uh, lobster industry. And that's one of the reasons we went to King Island to actually hang out with crayfisher um, people, skippers, um, fishermen and women, and to meet their families. And we were lucky enough to go out on a cray fishing boat. And my job is to go to an office most uh, days of the week. Their job is five days a week to go out on a cray fishing boat to catch crayfish. And that's their livelihood. That's how they pay the mortgage and put food on the table. And, you know, the evidence put forward by the Tasmanian government is that the seismic testing that's um, that's happening now will wipe out that fishery. Can you just explain that, how um, seismic testing affects invertebrates yep. like rock lobster? Yeah. Well, what seismic testing is, is basically a sonic boom. So when I was growing up um, in the UK, um, I remember Concorde flying um, from, you know, London airport to France, you know, right up in the sky. And because it flew so fast, you'd hear these massive booms through echoing through the sky like kind of like thunder but louder because Concorde was breaking the sound barrier. Uh, what seismic testing does um, and ConocoPhillips actually confirmed to one of the fishermen while we were on the island that the seismic testing it uses is 212 decibels loud. Now 212 doesn't sound much but 212 decibels is really at the upper limit of any sound anywhere, like the loudest sounds humans have ever created are, are about 200, 250 decibels. So it's incredibly loud. If, if depending on the distance, if you were in a city and there was a noise that loud, you know, relatively near you, your windows would shatter and your, your ears would bleed. And so what um, ConocoPhillips is doing is towing six um, modules behind um, a ship uh, and every few minutes there are these sonic booms, these seismic blasts, which are like radar, but they don't bounce off the seabed. They actually penetrate the seabed. And depending on how um, quickly and slowly and in what way they bounce back, that's how Conoco knows um, that there's you know, oil, uh, gas reserves under the seabed. And so... Uh, it'll be doing this testing for 40 to 50 days off, off King Island and every few minutes there'll be these sonic booms going into, uh, into the sea, into the marine um, seabed. And the thing about sound underwater is because water is denser than air, sound travels much, much further. Um, and, you know, lots of marine animals use sound. Uh, to communicate, or whales obviously, and are really sensitive to 
sound waves and and it's basically a form of energy which you know like a like a shock wave from a bomb reverberates through the water and can be so violent that it permanently damages or kills you know a whole host of marine life including um rock lobsters and we talked to a fisherman um kieran who had been fishing off victoria when they'd um, done seismic testing there and what he said was everything we pulled up the next day was either dead or dying mm. and so it's it's it has there been much scientific research around this impact on on invertebrates because i'm aware of Mm. Um, research around marine mammals particularly, but yeah. it's sort of um, a different thing, the impact on invertebrates. Yeah. There hasn't... Um, there's been some, but there hasn't been enough, mm. and some of the kind of question marks allow companies like Conoco to say, you know, or what, what we know, um, in our view, um, means that what we're doing is manageable and the impacts are okay. But mm. there's a really amazing principle um, which is scandalously underused and ignored <laughs> it's called the precautionary principle and what that means is if you can't prove something is safe assume it's harmful mm. and that's a really great idea because it's a really um, effective way of protecting you and me and the environment um, but it's almost never used by by government, it's not being used in this instance, it's not being used by companies like Conoco. Um, and what evidence we do have um, shows, you know, I'll, I'll point again to the um, really welcome evidence provided by the Tasmanian government and Tasmanian scientists and scientists at CSIRO, um, which, uh, quote, said that the damage caused by seismic blasting would be permanent. Mm. And what that means is, you know, it's likely to kill... Um, uh, animals uh, in the marine environment and significantly for uh, a community like King Island which depends for its livelihood on fishing uh, you know it could well be disastrous. And you mentioned um, so the community is obviously calling for um, the exploration to stop where's the um, wh where is the process at now what happens next? Well on the point about the community it's a really good point um, and uh, one of the reasons we went to um, uh, King Island is to actually uh, survey the community because no one had actually asked King Islanders what they want. Conoco Phillips arrived and did some very rudimentary, um, uh, in inverted commas, uh, consultation, which basically said, we're going to do this stuff um, and, you know, we're interested in what you think. But... Uh, the reason we were there is because we surveyed most of the island and we used an independent research company called EMRS based in uh, Tassie. And, you know, therefore we put in place a kind of objective survey to ask what um, the islanders wanted. And so, you know, we don't know what the results are yet. I haven't got the data back from the company, but that will be a really in, important indicator of what the community actually wants. Mm -hmm. And as far as the gas development itself go, it goes, yeah. what happens next after well, said 40 days of testing? Yeah, so um, our understanding at the moment, like there's no actual communication really between what Conoco is doing, the federal government, which is basically allowed this to go ahead, 
and the community, you know, we sort of remain in the dark. So we sort of, have, you know, try have to try and find out what's going on, you know, through a whole bunch of uh, channels. It's our understanding that so- the the seismic testing we think hasn't actually started yet. We think that the ship, um, which is kind of in place, is getting ready and it's sort of testing to test. Um, but that's not definite. It might have started. Um, it might not have started. Um, we don't know. That was Tom Allen from the Wilderness Society. And to keep up to date with what the Wilderness Society is doing around this, you can follow them on social media and check out their website. Thanks to James there from Out of the Blue for that report on the growing campaign against gas developments in the Bass Strait. Uh, that's all we have time for today on Monday Brekkie. We've had a big show um, with a strong climate focus. Um, we did start off the show listening um, to a segment about public transport and how to make it more accessible. Um, and then you heard two segments from... Uh, out of the blue. Out of the blue, yes, about the growing campaigns against seismic gas testing in, in the Bass Strait. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for joining us, everyone. My name's Jacob. And I'm Fung. And uh, join us next week for Monday Breakfast. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. While you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.